Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. We're glad you're journeying with us, and we hope that you find value from the teachings. If you'd like to connect or support the mission of Grace and Peace Church, check us out at graceandpeacechurch.org or find us on Instagram or Facebook. Grace and Peace. The sermon series that we are in is called Walk With Me, and essentially what we're doing is we're walking through the Gospels and we're looking at the ways that Jesus interacted with people and learning from it in a real simple way. And this week, he's sitting with his disciples and he's having a conversation about end times, all right? So some of you are like, cool, I'm way interested. And some of you guys are like, we're going to talk about Revelation. We're going to talk about all these like cryptic uh, passages in scripture and all this kind of stuff that's got figurative language going on. We're not going to get into that. We're going to get into the practical side of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about end times. So I hope to give you a little bit of an overview. And we're actually going to talk about it for two weeks. So um, I know you're like, some of you are like, yes, I'm in. And some of you are like, whoa, that's intense. We're going to get crazy. So this message will be a little intense. There is some like serious conversation that Jesus has with the disciples, but we can't ignore that. And that's why we read through scripture because We don't want to cherry pick the really fun, beautiful, just easy passages. We want to continue through and go, what does Jesus really talk about and why is it important? So hopefully you'll see why end times and why he talks about it, why it is important for us. And so I'm calling this blood is thicker than water. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before, blood is thicker than water. Okay, wow. Okay, I had just heard about it this week and like I'd heard the phrase, but I'd never really like processed it. And then I was like, what does it mean? What does it really mean, okay? So I want you to think about right now, you don't have to shout it out, but what does it mean to you? What do you think of, and maybe you're hearing the phrase for the first time, like how do you interpret this phrase, blood is thicker than water? Can anybody shout out where you heard that first? Or a few people. Where, like what context? Family relationships, that like blood, bloodlines run deeper than water, which could just be whatever. All right, so, um, and, and even in some terms, like, people that have shed blood together are, like, there's, like, a brotherhood that happens um, that's thicker than water, that's thicker than anything else, right? Um, <clears throat> so this phrase is going to, is hopefully going to carry us through this passage and give us kind of a context to uh, what Jesus is doing here as he sits with his disciples, okay? So let's read the passage, and then uh, we'll dig into it, okay? So... First thing, um, here we go, um, sorry, Start, I'm going to read from the screen because I keep doing this, I keep using my translation, okay, so destruction of the temple and signs of the end times, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And it goes on. and says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. Jesus says to him, watch out that no one deceives you. Many of you will, in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, and these are the beginning of birth pains. So it gets intense. You guys see this. He goes on. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested, brought into trial, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Intense, right? You're like, this is our Sunday message. We're getting pretty into it, right? Um, I'd love to just skip over it and kind of move into the next passage, move into something easier. Um, But we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about it. So the first thing I want to do is point out um, the temple symbolize the house of God, okay? So as they're sitting there and they're talking with Jesus, they're amazed at how beautiful the temple is and how extravagant it is. And they take pride in the temple. And the temple at that time would have been um, kind of one of the most beautiful things you would have seen in that city in Jerusalem, right? Um, There's so much time that's been put into it. If you read in the Old Testament, you begin to see a lot about that and how much emphasis was put on the temple, Um, maintaining that holy space where God resides was a huge priority in Jewish culture. Like, that was core to life. Um, And and so their amazement and their their awe of what the temple looked like reflected where their priorities were, that the temple was was everything, that that's where God is and that's where he's at, and that's where uh, you worship him and that's where the central... Uh, focus is put, and what Jesus does is he brings this radical message where he says, not one stone will be on top of another, right? So what he says about the temple, which is totally counterculture at that time, would have blown their minds. They're like, wait, this whole thing's going to be destroyed? Like, it's going to be completely destroyed. Not one stone is going to be on top of another. But what Jesus does is he reminds them and teaches them that the temple is no longer the priority. The temple is, used to be where God resides, but now the temple resides in all of us. And here's, in Ephesians 2.21, you begin to see this. I think we need this reminder constantly, even today, 2,000 years later, that God lives in us. And what it says in Ephesians, it says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, the Holy Spirit. So there's many other passages if you want to dig into this, um, and we'll talk a little bit about later, that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit residing in us, that God lives in us, that we are now a living temple, so to speak, that now we move and breathe and we reflect where God resides. And so when we love people, when we are generous, when we are kind, the temple, you, are reflecting the heart of God, right? And so what Jesus does here is he points out that we don't need to put all that emphasis on the building. We don't need to put all that emphasis on the structure that we think is so important. 
Um, as a church plant, we've never been able to put our hope in a building, right? Like we've been in three buildings now as a church plant. Um, and I think there's something really beautiful about that as I process what it means to be a church and how I've seen churches and how people get very connected to buildings. Um, buildings allow ministry to happen and allow things to exist. But when we emphasize the building as being the most important thing, we start to worship the building. And I think what Jesus does in this process, which there's a lot of complexity to what he talks about here, but what he does as he talks about the temple being destroyed um, is he puts the emphasis on God residing within us. And I think we need that reminder even today that like sometimes we think that where God operates and the ways that ministry can take place is only inside a church building or on a church property, but really it, it's in you and I. That as we all leave this place, people are going to see God way more than they will one hour on a Sunday morning here, right? So when we leave, we have opportunity to be this temple, this thing that they are in awe of where they're like, look how excellent, look how magnificent it is. And hopefully people see that in you and maybe you're like, there's nothing magnificent about me. But it's not really about you. It's about the way that we carry the heart of God in our voice, right, in our actions, in our hearts, in our minds, and our thoughts that we have throughout the week, that that begins to demonstrate to people really what is magnificent about God. It's not a building. It's not stone. It's not gold. There's none of that. It's all about um, him shining through us. And so Jesus goes on, and he basically, he prophesies exactly what's going to happen. He, he calls it out. And so when the disciples are sitting there having this conversation with him, like in awe of what's happening, um, it goes on, and uh, he basically just says, you know, this whole thing's going to be destroyed, and uh, if you want to dig into history, if you're a big history buff, um, there's a guy, a historian uh, named Joseph, Josephus, and it's um, outside of scripture, so you can kind of use Josephus as a way to confirm what happens in scripture. Um, it's kind of an interesting way to kind of dig in and and I think deepen your faith when it comes to events that exist in Scripture. And so uh, this historian, Josephus, he actually witnessed the siege of the temple. Um, and so Rome sacked Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. Um, and I'll read you a couple of these comments from uh, one of his books. And he says, uh, Now as soon as the army had no, more, uh, had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. Okay, so this is um, 70 AD. So this is after Jesus, right? So now the disciples would have seen it and went, oh, he's right. This whole thing, like as Jesus said it was gonna go down, it's now happening. So the temple's completely destroyed by Rome. Um, and, uh, and it goes on and says, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dig it up, uh, that dug it up uh, to the foundation, that there was uh, left nothing to make those that came thither believe Jer uh, Jerusalem had ever even been inhabited. So it's like, for Jesus to say, there will not be a stone left on top of another, he knew exactly what he was talking about. And he had that understanding, a big picture understanding that the disciples didn't know at that time. And so when we talk about end times, when we talk about Jesus' understanding of what is happening in culture and what is happening, what he calls 
his disciples to and what he ultimately calls us to and the church to um, is that he's like, don't put stake on that. Don't put stake in this building because the Holy Spirit resides within you. And I'll just confirm this. And so now we all know this because now we are obviously after these passages when they were written. Um, the disciples would have known that as they're writing it as well um, to confirm that this thing that Jesus talked about actually took place. And it, to me, that speaks to the authority that Jesus has and the ability to really speak to what um, is going on. And so, yes, Jesus understood and he had a right to be talking about these things. Um, and so he goes on. And so in verse 3 through 8, he gives this pretty intense um, response to Peter, to James, John, and Andrew, who are sitting there talking with him. They're like, what, when is this whole thing going to go down? When is this, all, this destruction all going to happen? And, um, and basically, Jesus responds with the first line. He says, see that nobody leads you astray. And then he starts to talk about this great divide that exists, Right? that kingdoms are going to clash against kingdoms, governments against governments, families against families, like brothers against brothers, sisters against it, like the whole thing. He's like, there's going to be a clash. And, um, and so to understand this clash, I want to give a bit of a background to what Jesus is doing. And so when he talks about this divide that exists or this clash, he's talking about what we would consider like very boiled down good and evil, Okay. And this took place from the beginning. If you go back to Genesis, we begin to see the creation story, and we see how God created us. And originally, in Genesis, everything was good. It was in its created order. It was the way it was supposed to be. There was blessing. But then what happens is God gives us this choice, and he says, you can either follow me, you can do life the way that I've created it to be, and have blessing, and have things in order, um, and in, in Genesis, it talks about shalom, this kind of peace, that relationships were created a way that works. Um, our relationship between us and God was the way that it was intended to be. And then there was a purity between us and each other and creation. So the garden was perfect, right? There's no, no work that was required other than them just enjoying it, blessing. But then what happens is God says, you can either follow that or you can do your own thing. And we still have that choice, and we, by us choosing to do whatever we want, that's where the curse came in. And that's where we, we all understand that, and as I'm like raising my girls, I'm helping them see that, that like when they make a mistake or when they do something really rude to, one, to each other, I'm like, that was not good. That what you did was, like I've seen them like where they go straight evil on each other, and they're like, I'm not evil, and I'm like, no, you're not evil, but your actions were, Right? And they're like, okay, yeah, like I, I shouldn't have done that. That was really mean. And they realize and they start to see it more and more that they're capable of really doing some messed up things to each other or being loving and kind and patient, you know, with each other in the middle of difficulties. And, and that's, ex that's exactly what we have on a global scale and what Jesus talks about here, that he helps his disciples understand that you can live in blessing or you can live under the curse, and you can live in this curse that basically is destructive, right? And we've all experienced it where someone's done something horrific towards you, and we've received that, that evil. You can call it darkness, evil, badness, whatever, like whatever kind of name you want to give it. Either way, it's not the way that God designed things to be. God designed us to thrive. He designed us to be in this uh, place of blessing. And so... When Jesus talks about this conflict, 
what he's saying is like, there will be people that are going to choose the curse way of life, and there's going to be people that are going to choose the kingdom, God's kingdom, the blessing. And, um, and so that decision really, it, it, it can be very minute, or it can be governmental, it can be whatever, like um, cultural, it can be massive, or it can be very small. And so um, I want to give you guys a quick example. I'm kind of like faking nerdness right now. Um, anybody watch Lord of the Rings? Okay, so we've got a couple people in here. Um, anybody, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little out of my league, but I just love watching it, okay? Um, because when I talk to Matt or when I talk to somebody like Peyton who come, used to come to our church, um, they understand like Lord of the Rings and when you talk about the new show that's called Rings of Power, and we watch that, any rings of power? I'm the only one? Okay, so I'm just like, okay, one other person, kind of. Um, so um, as I've like started to fake into this whole realm of Lord of the Rings and J.R. Tolkien, but uh, I guess Rings of Power was kind of like a spring off. It was really, really wasn't something he wrote. Um, but as I was watching it, there's a, there's a very clear example of like good versus evil that plays out in these shows, okay? And so if you get to watch it, like it's, it's, it's captivating like when you start to get into it. Um, but Rings of Power really like puts on display this idea of good and evil, and that evil is out to destroy people. Like, it's not just, oh, that's evil, and it just kind of exists, and it just does its thing. No, like, evil is out to be destructive. And what you see in a very poetic and beautiful way um, is that through the main characters, you start to see that, like, the good originally was designed for eternity. And these elves, they live forever. Um, There's light. There's no darkness in the places that they live until evil came in, right? And evil comes in. And there's this phrase, this line in the very first episode, and I would just encourage you to watch it because it's just such a beautiful, um, I think, allegory for it. But um, it says, we had no word for death. No word for death. For we thought our joys would be unending, right? And I think sometimes we think that because maybe we're not in the middle of turmoil constantly, or maybe you're like, no, I I understand that definitely. Um, we have no word for that. We thought the joys would be unending. Now we have, uh, sorry, now we have many, many words for death. And the, the visual that you see is like this pile of helmets from soldiers that have like died fighting this darkness, this evil, right? And so I began to think about that and I was like, sometimes I think we, um, we, we don't really have to be in this battle and this doesn't exist and that... Um, that it's just so, some people choose another way of life and we choose a different way of life. And one isn't better than the other. It's all relative. But I do believe that when you look at scripture and you look at what Jesus talks about, people will choose evil, right? We've, and, and we could talk about it. We can get into all the nuance and the details, but people will choose evil. People will step on other people to climb the ladder and push other people down to get to the top. We know that exists in our world. And what Jesus points out is that you can either be part of that good that is going to continue to push back that evil and that darkness, or you can just be part of that and just go with the flow and do, your, and do the thing that everybody is doing. And what he points out is that there will be tension, that that tension will exist. Personally, like on, our, like on an inward, like personal level, every single day you're going to have that battle. You might have weeks where you're like, I'm happy and I'm good, and then suddenly you're like, I don't feel right. Like, I feel depressed or angry or I feel like 
I'm tempted by something, or something will come in and start to poke at your joy, poke at your goodness, poke at your blessing. Something will come in and do that. It will happen no matter what. Um, None of us are exempt from it. And maybe you've seen how those seasons exist in our lives, but I think when we start to see that there is this propensity towards evil and death and darkness around us, we start to be more aware of how we can begin to protect ourselves towards it. And what I think Jesus does here in this conversation with his disciples is helps them see the two worlds that exist, the two kingdoms. And I believe that when we become complacent and we don't, um, which this is like, I'm going to kind of give some of it away, but like rings of power, the whole thing is like she's just continually battling towards darkness and helping other people see that you can't just live in ignorance and pretend that it doesn't exist because it's going to come and the battle will come eventually, right? And it's such a good metaphor for life, I believe, that like there is times where we're going to think that everything's fine, um, that everything's okay, but there will be challenge. I told you that this message is going to be difficult as we talk about end times and we talk about difficult passages like this. Um, but I think one of the things is we can't keep our head in the sand. We can't just pretend that that doesn't exist. Um, evil is continually around us. Death is around us. Um, but when we become consumed by it, that's where the problem lies. And that's where a hopelessness starts to set in. Um, this week, uh, we've been kind of working on, uh, I've been helping my, my buddy Tim, and Summer has as well, um, in a conversation about what does it look like for us to continue to serve in Haiti. And Haiti's been one of those places that some of you guys have maybe heard about in the news and seen what's going on. But there, when you, when you talk about evil and you talk about people that are set or bent towards continuing to cause destruction in other people's lives, go there and you will see it on display very clear. Like it's contrasting very clear like what is going on. And, um, and so we've been kind of wrestling through like how do we go and begin to serve and help because now they just called like an evacuation order for any non-essential workers. So like missionaries that are there, like healthcare workers, anybody that just doesn't need to be there, leave. Like, and I get chills like thinking about how how dark does a place have to get to where you have to begin to remove people that have the option of leaving, right? And I feel like that's like a very concise, like microcosm of like what can happen in our personal lives and what can happen globally when we begin to say like, you know what, people can just do whatever they want. Or like evil can just do, like people can choose their own choices and just evil can prevail if they want, but like I'm gonna do my thing and me and God are just gonna go off on our own little like, blessed journey, you know, together with our Bible, you know, and pray and have a conversation with God. But that's not what Jesus points out. He points out that there's going to be tension. Like, there's going to be a battle that will exist, and you have to do something about it. And that hopelessness that can set in when we begin to say, I don't care, I don't want to be a part of it, or that that is just already, like, it's overwhelming, I don't know what to do about it, um, it immobilizes us. And when we talk about Haiti, when we talk about stepping in those places, there's going to be stuff that will challenge us, that will be difficult, scary. Like we talked about flying down there just to go and begin to like um, take some first steps in what it means to help out in this new community that we're starting, this new initiative. And, and then we're like, is it safe? And we're like, no. 
like maybe we should hold off and like how can we find other ways to like serve and come alongside these people that are that are struggling that are suffering right um, and and we're not gonna lie like it, it takes some it's gonna cost us in some ways right either financially or our time or our safety or our comfort and uh, and so we're weighing that out like how much is how dangerous do you have to live your life, you know? Or how comfortable should we be here? Um, because a lot of times we are unaware of a lot of these, these tensions that exist. And it's easy just to say, well, you're on your own. Um, but what he says there is he says, endure. These challenges will exist, but endure. Step into it. Begin to see how you begin to serve. Um, and here's where I want to begin to talk about this, this idea of... Um, Blood is thicker than water because we have a decision to make um, of where our loyalties will lie. This is really what this whole thing comes down to. Um, when he says the phrase, a brother will turn against a brother, a father against his child, he's saying that people will make decisions even within family bloodlines that will divide. And maybe you're sitting here, as I started to wrestle with this pastor, I'm like, how do we make this clear and how do I really like how do I sit with and personally be challenged by this? And I begin to think, here, where we live, do families disown us if we become a Christian? And some of you are like, no, not really. But some of you are like, maybe. I don't know, maybe your family ties have been broken because of your faith. Um, but I begin to think about that and really sit with it. That what Jesus points out is that people won't like the way that you live because you're choosing to follow Christ and will disown you. And I was like, where does that exist? And I want to show you guys a quick video because I had to remind myself uh, that not everybody lives in the kind of freedom that we live in. Globally, there are people who do not have that freedom, that when they make this choice to draw that line to say, I'm going to follow Christ, it has massive ramifications for their lives. And I want to like remind us, it's a three-minute video uh, by Open Door. And Open Door, what they do is they they basically connect uh, churches and ministries uh, with people that are being persecuted globally. Okay, and I threw a link in the the notes if you want to look at it and do some research and begin to see. But this is where the line begins to exist, and we have to acknowledge at some point in our faith whether we're gonna choose to be part of what Jesus is doing and the good and the blessing and the redemption that it brings in people's lives, or are we going to continue just to be ignorant, or are we going to stay on the fence and just say, well, I kind of like both sides. So check this out. This is Cappadocia. First mentioned in the book of Acts, an ancient home for Christians for thousands of years. But it isn't just a home. It's also a place of refuge. God has used this place to help Christians for hundreds of years. Christians fleeing invaders, persecution, and certain death. And here, walking in the footsteps of thousands of faithful Christians, I'm reminded of how God used this place to keep his church alive and growing. But in many countries around the world, this is not ancient history. Millions of Christians face this reality on a daily basis. 
우리가 갖고 있던 성경책은 발각되는 순간 처리되었습니다. 그리고 우리는 그리스도인이었기 때문에 머나먼 곳으로 추방되었습니다. 이제 결코 도망갈 수 없게 되었습니다. توی ایران وقتی که یه نفر به ایسای مسیح ایمان میاره طبیعتاً و برای همین که خودشون در خطر نیفتن اون شخص رو رهان کنن بهش میگن دیگه با ما رفته آمد نداشته باشیم Around the world today, over 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. That's one in seven Christians worldwide. The problem is impossible to overstate. And yet, each of those people who suffers has their own Cappadocia, a secret place that God has provided a refuge and peace. because no christian suffers alone 아침 눈을 뜰때주 하나님의 임재를 느낍니다. 여전히 주의 종으로 섬길 수 있도록 강건하게 하시는 우리 아버지 하나님께 감사드립니다. When brothers and sisters around the world stand with them, persecuted christians know that even in the harshest of circumstances they will not be forgotten and left without hope. That's part of our DNA as Christians. When you stand with God's persecuted people, you're bringing the reality of Cappadocia to Christians all over the world. Afradi hastan ke ba man hastan, afradi hastan ke o dard man geriye mikonan. Afradi hastan ke baray man geriye mikonan va dua mikonan. In baram khayla khobat This year, we've made it easier than ever for you to stand with your family in prayer with the 2022 World Watch List. As you read it, see what God does in your heart and what he does in the hearts of your brothers and sisters as he provides refuge as he's done here in Cappadocia for over a thousand years. Join us in 2022 because we're one church, one family. So I show that not to really advertise what they're doing, but really to, if you're interested in checking it out, to be informed as to what people are going through globally. And you'll begin to see story after story as you click through their website, um, uh, or even just lists of people to pray over, um, ministries to pray over, churches that, uh, that are underground, um, that can't meet freely like we do, um, that have made a choice to follow Jesus, and to be part of God's kingdom, but others are saying, you can't do that. We're not going to allow that. Um, and what we see here in this passage, I believe, is a distinct call to not be fence dwellers, to make a call to say, I'm going to be part of this kingdom, um, which I'll talk about why in a second. Um, but... There's clear distinction between those that want to be part of what God is doing to bring redemption, to bring healing, to bring freedom, um, and those that want to destroy it. And the distinction I see here is that 
it's not necessarily believers that are choosing this. I believe that it's other people that don't like that because I think what it does is it points out the darkness in ourselves. Um, and uh, for others to persecute Christians because they want to make a difference, because they want to transform their communities, um, it's sad to see that. And what we see here is this call. And the reason I brought that, that passage, blood is thicker than water, because when I started to research what it means, is that in its original context, it actually came from Scripture, um, that it really doesn't have to do with family ties. It has to do with a covenant. The blood covenant made between brothers and sisters in Christ is bigger than the covenant of, or the bigger than the blood that we share as family. Um, and so the original phrase uh, is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. All right? And I know that completely flips what we think that phrase means and what most people will probably say that phrase means. Uh, but for me as a believer, I believe it gives even deeper depth to it now that there is a covenant. And I know if that's a new term for you, then let me just unpack it for a second. In the Old Testament, a covenant was made through blood. It was an offering and they would take an animal sacrifice, they would cut it in half, and the two people would make this covenant standing in the blood and they would shake hands. And sometimes even like the term like blood brothers comes from where they would cut themselves and then they would shake hands um, and combine blood. But really it's about the covenant that you've made in blood. It has nothing to do with um, your DNA. It has to do with a commitment to a brother. And it's originally from this conversation that happens between Jonathan, um, Jonathan and who was it? my notes. Um, sorry. Uh, and David. So Jonathan and David make this covenant, and that's where he, the phrase comes from, where he talks about that, um, that these, they are now blood brothers. Um, and so this, this covenant that we make is carried out throughout Scripture. Jesus talks about it as well. And I want to show you this, this uh, typical passage that you would see and I would have loved to take community. I probably would have done that. Um, but the, uh, in Matthew 26, he says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That sin no longer will have reign. That as we are now a covenant, blood covenant, brothers and sisters, we're now part of this family that Jesus invites us into, this kingdom that he invites us into that now prioritizes God's way of living over even familial connections. And so like, there's a deeper covenant, this deeper connection that now ties us. And so now we become connected through the blood of Jesus. The blood is thicker than water. The blood of Jesus is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than the water of the womb that connects us as families. Um, not to downplay families and caring for our families and loving one another as families, but when we become part of the body of Christ, we become part of the gospel that is transforming the world. And so I want to close um, just by saying that God's promise to us um, is not just salvation, it's not just forgiveness of sins, um, it's not just blessing, not just restoration. 
Um, it's so much more than that. It, like, it impacts all of our life, and then we begin to be participants in impacting the world that we live in. And so um, I hope this doesn't become just a, a decision about wishful thinking that life's going to be somehow better, but it's really like when we make this covenant to follow Christ, it transforms life, and it begins to be part of transforming the world that we live in. And so when he ends talking to his disciples saying, stand firm, it's going to be difficult, but stand firm. I hope that we hear that as hope and as an encouragement today as we went through all this difficult language that Jesus gives us of challenge and conflict and good and evil, but he ends it with, stand firm, because what you're doing is transforming the world. What you guys have been a part of, many of you have been part of for the last, I don't know, almost 10 years, serving in Haiti, has made a difference in people's lives. We know that leaders exist there because of ministry that's taken place there. Um, I know that the way that you treat people throughout the week is going to transform life. Um, it may challenge them. They may push against that and say, I don't want to be a part of it. But the gospel will be at work through you, and people's lives will be transformed as a result of it. And so the question I want to kind of end with that kind of gives us this like decision to make um, is, man, if things are going to be difficult either way, because what Jesus paints here is that it's going to be difficult for these disciples. If it's going to be difficult either way, why not just choose to just do whatever we want? Because here's the thing. My life has been transformed personally because someone else gave up of their life in order to pour into mine. Many of you sit here as a result of somebody else who poured out their life so that you could be here, right? You, on small scale or large scale, like faith or outside of that, people have to give up something in order for others to thrive and experience that life. And so my encouragement would be just press into that. Be reminded that there is something beautiful at work that Jesus is doing, that when he talks about end times, he's just saying, like, look at the two options you have. Which one is better? The one that transforms the world that we live in and gives people hope, or the one that continues to destroy and create cycles of destruction? I want to be part of hope. I want to be part of what transforms life for good. And that takes, it takes some intentionality, right? It's going to take a little bit of uh, focus. And so um, let me just pray over us as we go into the rest of this day and this week as we have opportunities that might be difficult but are so good and so life-giving. So, Lord, um, thank you for each and every person in here. Um, thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit that resides in us, that it's not about this building, that the temple is in us, and that you reside in us as we go into the different places that you've called us to. And so work through us. Um, transform life from the inside out, that we might be a blessing to the community that we live in. And we pray this in your name. Amen.